Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 33. The Enemy Abroad. Back in 600 BC, the Persians were a small, quite insignificant people living in the area we now call Iran. Their territory bordered a land called Medea and the Empire of Babylon. It's quite possible they would have remained a quite insignificant people if they hadn't found a mighty leader. But they did find a mighty leader, and he led them to some amazing triumphs. Cyrus became leader of the Persians in 559 BC, and soon came to be known by the name Cyrus the Great. He picked up his armed forces and swept into Medea and conquered it. The Medes became subject of the Persians. Then, amazingly, he swept into the ancient kingdom of Babylon and conquered it too. The ancient kingdom was gone. He then conquered Armenia, Syria and Cappadocia, and so his empire stretched up to Asia Minor, reaching the border with the kingdom of Lydia. The king of Lydia was called Croesus. According to the historian Herodotus, Croesus was the richest man in the world. He also thought he was the happiest man in the world. He was visited in his capital of Sardis by Solon during his ten-year trip. Croesus knew how wise Solon was, so he asked him a question. He asked the great man who was the happiest man he had ever seen. He clearly expected Solon to say that he, Croesus, was the happiest. Solon, though, thought for a while and then answered, The happiest man I have ever seen is an Athenian called Tellus. He was prosperous, he had fine sons, he lived to see each of them have children, and all of those children did well. He had enough money to live comfortably, and he had a glorious death. He fought for his country against a local enemy, he won the battle, and died in it. The Athenians gave him a, a memorial at the spot where he fell. Croesus was highly unamused by this answer, but he thought he'd see if he was the second happiest man. So he asked who was second. Solon told a story about two men from Argos who helped their mother by dragging an ox cart. They also had a glorious death and had statues made of them. Croesus was now very unhappy and demanded to know how these dead people could be happier than him. Solon wisely told him he couldn't tell him how happy he'd been until he was dead. Croesus grumped. Croesus didn't learn his lesson and it came back to bite him. When he saw the Persians arriving on his doorstep, he decided they needed to be beaten. Of course, he wasn't stupid enough to start a war without asking the oracle whether he'd win, so he went to Delphi and asked if he should cross the river and attack the Persians. According to Herodotus, the oracle answered, If you do, a great empire will fall. Croesus was, of course, delighted and he launched an attack. He was utterly smashed by the Persian army. The oracle was right, but it was Croesus's empire that fell, not the Persian one. In 549 BC, the Persians took Sardis and Lydia was also under their control. We remember the last king of Lydia today. If someone has a huge amount of money, we say that they are as rich as Croesus. Cyrus the Great had created a huge empire in just 20 years. When he died in battle in 530, he was leader of a magnificent empire. He was succeeded by his son Cambyses II, who was nearly as successful. Amazingly, he conquered Egypt, as well as other parts of Africa. He was overthrown in 523. After a year-long power struggle, the throne of Persia was offered to a man called Darius. Darius, who soon came to be known as Darius the Great, carried on where Cambyses left off, and by 516 he controlled most of Central Asia right up to the Indus River. 
In 510, he captured the Greek cities of Ionia, and soon controlled Thrace and Macedonia too. The Greeks had been too busy fighting amongst themselves to be too bothered about the Persians. In fact, the Athenians had contacted the Persians to ask for help in their quarrels with the Spartans. In 499, though, something happened which made the rest of the Greeks, and particularly the Athenians, sit up and take some notice. The citizens of Miletus in Ionia rose up in rebellion against the Persians. Their leader was called Aristagoras. He was in trouble with the Persian king because he had suggested an invasion of Naxos. The invasion was a total failure and Darius was not pleased at all. Aristagoras decided that his only chance of survival was to rebel against the Persians. Somehow, he managed to persuade the other Ionian cities to revolt, and pretty soon many of them had overthrown their tyrants and formed democracies. They had not had democracies before, so it is assumed they got the idea from their cousins in Athens. Well, what do we have here? A very powerful Persian empire has been kicked in the face by a group of Greek cities. Not only that, the leader of the Ionian rebellion had only rebelled because he was in big trouble with the Persians about something else. Aristagoras realised that Darius the Great was going to be highly annoyed, and that he'd need help if the rebellion was to carry on. Now, who are the most powerful soldiers in Greece? Who trained their young men to be soldiers from the age of seven? Whose hoplite phalanx was feared the most? Yes, the Spartans. Aristagoras travelled to Sparta to ask for their help. The Spartans, though, were Dorians. They had no real love for the Ionians in Asia Minor and decided they needed convincing. Aristagoras told great stories of the wealth of the Persians and how much treasure they could bring back to Sparta if they defeated Darius. The Spartan king, never one to turn down treasure, began to be interested. He asked Aristagoras how long it would take to march from Miletus to the Persian capital. Three months, said Aristagoras. The Spartan king laughed very loudly and told him to get lost. Aristagoras travelled on to Athens in the hope that his fellow Ionians would be more helpful. And they were. They agreed to help the Ionian Greeks in their battle with the Persians. They were a bit worried about the Persians themselves, and so they thought that maybe it was time to show them a lesson. They sent a fleet of twenty ships and a small army. They were joined by some men from the city of Eritrea. The ships landed in Miletus and the soldiers marched inland. They reached the city of Sardis, which, as we know, used to be the capital of Lydia. It was still the capital, but Lydia was no longer an independent state. It was what came to be known as a satrap, which was a state subject to the rule of Persia. The Athenians, Eritreans and Ionians managed to capture the city. Then they went on to liberate nearly all of the cities of Ionia. Each city set up its own democracy. Darius, of course, was mightily ticked off. He launched an offensive to retake the cities. It took him six years, but eventually he was successful. The Athenians were driven home, Miletus was burned, and the rest of the Ionian cities were once again satraps. Darius, though, was not called Darius the Great for nothing. He gazed out over the sea towards Athens with venom in his veins and anger in his heart. He planned revenge, and he planned it carefully. In Athens, the eponymous Archon was worried. He realised that Darius was unlikely to forget how the Athenians had helped the Ionians. He was right to be worried. In 492 BC, Darius sent his cousin, Mardonius, to go and hassle the Greeks. Mardonius was immensely successful. First he marched into Thrace and took over. Next he moved into Macedonia. 
Macedonia had been allied with the Persians, but now Mardonius forced the kingdom to become yet another satrap. He was on his way to Greece when he was shipwrecked and injured. He returned to Asia, and the Greeks breathed a sigh of relief. They breathed too early. Darius sent ambassadors to all of the major Greek cities, demanding that they become satraps. Most of them agreed, but two didn't. No, two of the cities executed the ambassadors instead. There was no way Darius was going to take the execution of his ambassadors lying down. War was inevitable, and the two Greek cities prepared themselves. They knew they'd have to work together. And which cities were they? Athens and Sparta, of course. Darius prepared his army and set sail. First he took revenge on the city of Eritrea. For six days they put the city under siege. On the seventh day the city was betrayed and the Persians stormed in. Eretria fell. Most of the citizens were killed and the rest were sold into slavery. The city was sacked and then burned to the ground. The Persians arrived on the coast of Attica. They landed at a bay known as the Bay of Marathon. There were 25,000 of them and they were intent on destroying Athens. There were far fewer Athenians, maybe 10,000, and the defenders knew they needed help. They positioned their troops so as to block the only two exits inland from the bay. Then they asked for help from the only city able or willing to give them any. Unfortunately, Sparta was 150 miles away and help was needed urgently. Fortunately, there was somebody who could help. The greatest runner in Athens at the time was a man named Pheidippides. He was dispatched to run to Sparta to beg the kings of the Dorian city to come to the aid of Athens. How long do you think it took him to run to Sparta? Ten days? Eight days? No. It took Pheidippides just under two days to get there. He gave the kings the message that Athens and all of Greece was in danger and they must come to help. Eventually, after finishing their religious ceremonies, the Spartans began to march towards Marathon. Meanwhile, the Athenians were keeping the Persians at bay. Neither side was too keen on attacking, and there was no real fighting for a few days. The Spartans got closer and closer. All the Athenians had to do was wait until they arrived. The Spartans got closer and closer still. It would not be long now before they got there. And then, for some unknown reason, the Athenians attacked. Miltiades, who was the Greek commander, ordered the two tribes that were forming the centre of the Greek formation to be arranged in four ranks. The rest of the tribes at their flanks were in ranks of eight. A simple signal was given by the commander, and the Athenians ran, very, very fast, towards the invading army. The Persians fired arrows and other missiles at the Greeks, but the Greeks kept running. They were protected by their armour, and virtually no missiles got through. Hardly any of the Athenians fell, and it wasn't long before the hoplites reached the Persian soldiers. When they reached the Persian lines, they attacked with every ounce of their strength. There was a terrible sound of metal crashing against bone as the Athenians ploughed through their enemies. The Persian flanks realised they were beaten and ran away. The centre of the Persian army was made of stronger stuff, and they had some success against the Greek centre. They were no match for the hoplites, though, and soon they too ran away. The Persians ran and ran and ran back towards their ships. Some got lost and ran instead into swamps and drowned. The Battle of Marathon was a huge victory for Athens. At the end of the day, 6,400 Persians were dead. Seven Persian ships had been captured, and the rest of the Persian forces had sailed away in panic. 
just 192 Athenians were killed. Pheidippides ran the 26 miles to the city of Athens to inform them of the victory and tell them that the Persians may try to land nearer to the city. Pheidippides' run from Marathon to Athens was commemorated by a race of that length being introduced into the Olympic Games. The race is called, of course, the Marathon. Sadly, poor old Pheidippides fell over and died after he'd given the message. Fortunately, that doesn't happen to too many marathon runners today. The Persians did indeed try to land closer to Athens and take the city, but the Athenian army got there before them. The Persians, realising they'd lost, and lost badly, sailed back to Asia. The Spartans arrived a couple of days later and toured the battlefield, still strewn with dead Persians. Being the mighty military force they were, they recognised a whopping victory when they saw one. They informed the Athenians they were very impressed, and then went home. Darius was livid. He immediately planned the next invasion of Greece. Darius the Great, though, never got the chance to put his plan into action. As he was about to attack Greece again, he learned of a rebellion in Egypt. As he was marching down to put down the rebellion, Darius the Great died. He was succeeded by his son, Xerxes. Xerxes quickly put down the Egyptian rebellion and planned the invasion of Greece. In 481 BC, he was ready. The Persian fleet was dispatched towards Greece. Xerxes, with maybe 200,000 troops, marched over land through Macedonia and towards Greece that way. The Greek city-states realised they would have to work together if they were going to have any chance of beating the invading forces. They realised that if the Persians wanted to get to Athens, Attica, Boeotia or Sparta by land, then they'd have to march through a narrow valley called the Pass of Thermopylae. The Council of Greek Cities decided they'd block the pass. It was agreed that one of the kings of Sparta, Leonidas, would lead the defence of Thermopylae. They also realised that if the Persians wanted to get through by sea, they'd have to sail, sail through a passage called the Strait of Artemisium. It was agreed that the Greek fleet, under a commander called Themistocles, would blockade the strait. Themistocles put to sea. The two fleets met in a naval battle, but neither side really came out on top. The Persians, though, didn't get through the Strait of Artemisium. Leonidas marched to the pass of Thermopylae with his 300 Hippies. As they marched, they picked up 400 Thebans, 700 Thespians, 1,000 Phocians, and a few others. They took up position in the middle of the pass at a place called Middle Gate. Here the valley was just 65 feet wide and the cliffs went straight up. If the Persians wanted to get to Athens and the rest of Greece, they'd have to go through the middle gate. Leonidas and his 300 arrived at the middle gate. The rest of his army now numbered about 7,000. They prepared themselves and waited. In mid-August 480 BC, the Persian army arrived. A generous offer was made to Leonidas if he surrendered. Leonidas refused. He was then told, a little more forcefully, to put down his weapons. Leonidas summoned up his courage. Come and take them, he said. The Persians took him up on his kind offer, but not straight away. Xerxes waited four days, expecting the Spartans and their allies to run away at any moment. When it was clear that the Greeks were not at all scared and had no intention of legging it, the Persians attacked. Although there were 200,000 of them and only 7,000 Greeks, they made no headway. The hoplites had better armour, were better trained and had much better spears. The invading army suffered horrendous casualties while only a small number of Greeks were killed. 
The Greeks then killed even more Persians with a clever trick. The phalanx broke up and the hoplites pretended to run away. After they'd gone a little way, suddenly they turned around and slaughtered the Persians who had chased them. They then reformed the phalanx. They did this a few times before the enemy worked out what was going on. Bodies began to pile up. By the end of the second day of fighting, 20,000 Persians were dead. It may have been possible for the Greeks to defend the pass successfully for a long time, but they were betrayed by a local man called Ephialtes. The dirty traitor agreed to show Xerxes a route through the mountains so that he could attack the Greeks from the other side. During the night, a force crept along the path and positioned themselves on the other side of the Greek army. In the morning, poor old Leonidas and his brave army were playing the part of a tasty filling in a Greek sandwich. Leonidas managed to save some of his army by sending them away before it was too late. He then turned and faced the enemy. Leonidas, the Spartans, Thebans and Thespians stood and fought until every last one of them was dead. The Battle of Thermopylae was a defeat for the Greeks, but it cost the Persians more than 20,000 men. Xerxes was so furious that he'd lost so many soldiers that he had poor dead Leonidas whipped and his head cut off. The defeated Spartans, Thebans and Thespians at Thermopylae were, and have been ever since, thought of as great heroes who sacrificed their lives for Greece. The poet, Simonides, composed a short tribute to the men who died. O stranger, send the news home to the people of Sparta, that here we are laid to rest, the commands they gave us have been obeyed. A memorial stands at the pass of Thermopylae with Simonides' words on it. Heroes the Spartans may have been, but it did the Greeks no good at all. The Persians were now free to march on Athens. The Athenians, realising there was no hope of defending the city, fled and abandoned it. The Persians marched in and sacked the city, burning it to the ground. Those few Greeks who stayed were killed. Xerxes then overran Boeotia. Xerxes was very pleased. He had taken on the largest of the Greek polys and was well on his way to conquering all of Greece. He'd beaten the Greek army and the news of the sea battle at Artemisium was also good. Themistocles had heard about the defeat at Thermopylae and had withdrawn the fleet to the island of Salamis. Themistocles surveyed his fleet thoughtfully and wondered what he could do next. Was Greek doomed? Was all of Greece to be a satrap of Persia? In the next chapter, we will find out. If you're enjoying the podcast or have any other feedback, then please contact me by email at mythandhistory at gmail.com or on Facebook at Paul Vincent Myth and History. You can find the website for this podcast at www.mythandhistory.podbean.com If you have the chance, please check out my other podcast, The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights, also available on iTunes and at www.mythandhistory2.podbean.com So, until the next chapter, have a great week and I'll speak to you next time.